This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching to the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 20. The desire for position and preference is really a thirst for safety and security. We want to be the boss so we can determine our future and hopefully avoid the hard times or difficult outcomes. But this is just man's prideful attempt to gain glory without suffering. God's perfect plan is different. He determines that suffering comes before glory and that glory, position, and honor are his to bestow on his children. That's hard to accept unless you're a believer and you've come to know just how good and trustworthy God is. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. I want you to follow along with me. We're going to read the whole scene, Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28. And by the way, see if some of you moms identify a pattern here. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand and on my left, that is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom he has been prepared by my Father. In hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." What we have here in this scene, church, is two aspects of conscientious selflessness because Jesus embodies that virtue of selflessness, of thinking of, of ourselves last, putting ourselves at the bottom of the pile, the bottom of the list. That doesn't come naturally for you and for me. So in order for us to understand the prescription that Jesus is giving here, we must understand, first of all, God's perfect plan. And that perfect plan is suffering before glory in verses 17 through 19. God's perfect plan always involves suffering before glory. The problem is we try to invert that order. But Matthew, again, like I said, places the gospel here between scenes by quoting Jesus' announcement of his death, burial, and resurrection. He has done that before, for example, in chapter 16 and some other times too. But this time, he provides new details, namely the place of his betrayal. By the way, the betrayal is also something that is new for them. Now, there's a legal proceeding because he says the Son of Man will be convicted, will be condemned. So he makes reference of a legal proceeding followed by a conviction and sentencing, which was capital punishment, Roman style. 
There's also flogging that, that would precede his execution. He mentions all of that here. And by the way, the, the, the Romans had to be involved. That's why he said he will be executed by the Gentiles because Jews were not allowed to crucify anyone. But the timeline of his resurrection, the mention of the third date here, should have stirred up the hearts of the disciples and given them hope. But here's an interesting detail that Luke points out when he's describing the same scene here. In Luke 18, verse 34, he says that the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Now, obviously, this is God's sovereignty on display here, but they were so consumed with personal glory, with when are we going to get our rewards, Lord, for leaving families and all of that for your sake, that they couldn't even stop and think, wait a minute, betrayal? <laughs> Did you just say you're going to be betrayed? Now, Jesus foretells his passion here, followed by the resurrection, because the cross has always been God's perfect plan. Now, I don't know where we get this idea that God had to come up with the idea of the cross in order to adjust because of man's reaction or in order to mitigate the terror of sin. No, the cross has always been God's perfect plan, even from eternity past, So the cross is not plan B. It's not, oops, I got to do something here in order to redeem sinners. The crucifixion was not an afterthought. And Jesus makes it very clear here. So sometime in eternity past, God determined, church, to display his attribute of grace. Consider that. You and I would never know what divine grace is unless there was sin in the world. And because there is sin in the world, God himself said, I am going to come down there and demonstrate my grace because I am going to receive the punishment that they deserve so that I can save many, the Bible says here. And that's divine grace on display, something we would never know if it weren't for the cross. And church, the reason for that too is that in God's economy, his perfect plan, suffering always precedes glory. And because that is the reality in Christ's life, that's, how, that's the order of things that God has established. We follow the same pattern. Why do we think that for some reason God's going to reverse the process with you and me? But thankfully, pain or suffering only lasts for a season. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, glory will be forever. Obviously, Jesus already endured the most severe calamity of all times so that everyone who would place their trust in him will not perish but have eternal life. We know that from John 3.16. And he also said, in this world, you will have trouble. He promises us, believers in Christ, in this world, you will have trouble. But he follows that up by saying, take heart because I have overcome the world. John 16, verse 33. And again, One of the things that you, as a believer in Christ, certainly have thought about is, why suffering? And we endure temporary suffering for many reasons, many of which God never explains to us why. And we don't need to know. All we need to do is trust Him, that He knows what He's doing. He is sovereign. But one of the reasons why He allows us to go through suffering is to give us the great honor of identification with our Savior, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, And if we wish to follow him, the Bible says we must take up our cross and follow him. So taking up a cross, church, is a death sentence. Again, I've mentioned this many times. I don't know where we get the idea of taking up the cross means having to tolerate a noisy neighbor or a yapping chihuahua or, or an overbearing cousin. That's None of these things are true. 
Picking up your cross and following Christ means you are signing your death sentence. You are identifying with the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, which means suffering is going to be a a part of your life. And again, church, the reason we find suffering so appalling and so repulsive is because crucifixion before coronation challenges everything that we learn from an early age. Self-preservation. We're all about self-preservation. That is a good thing. However... When we idolize our lives, when we idolize self-preservation to the point where we reject these words from Christ, that whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, then we're missing the point. Now, we loathe suffering so much that we invent convoluted doctrines in order to excuse God or to exonerate God for allowing evil in the world. And I say this from experience. I cannot tell you. How many times people have come to me in protest saying, I cannot believe that God allows this to happen. Although not the creator of evil, God appoints suffering in people's lives. And if you are cringing and if you're thinking, wait a minute, I don't know if that's true. Let me help you with that. Genesis 50 verse 20. This is Joseph telling his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So he recognizes human culpability from his brothers. He says, you meant evil against me. Now you're not off the hook. You meant evil against me. But he says, and he recognizes that there's a divine purpose. God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result. And if you're not familiar with the story, go read Genesis. Starts in chapter 36 or 37. The story of uh, Joseph, the son of Jacob. Deuteronomy 32 verse 39. See now that I, I am he. There is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. So pastor, are you telling me that God kills people sometimes and he wounds people sometimes? No, I'm not saying that. God is. Psalm 105, verse 16, And he, meaning God, called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. So not only does God sometimes kill people and wounds people, he also allows for a famine upon the land, according to Psalm 105, verse 16. Lamentations 3, verses 37 through 38. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? That's a rhetorical question. Isaiah 45 verses 6 through 7. There is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. In Acts 9, verse 16, this is the resurrected Christ saying, I will show him, meaning Paul, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So church, it's clear here from the Bible. And by the way, scripture abounds with passages like these. And they should change our view of suffering. Now, whether self-inflicted or caused by others, your predicament belongs to a divine plan, again, that you may never understand Don't demand an explanation from God. Instead, walk by faith and not by sight. And why we walk by faith and not by sight? What we do with our sight is we fix our eyes on the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, verse 2. So Jesus predicts 
The cross here in this scene in the Gospel of Matthew, and the author of Hebrews tells us that he looked forward to the cross. He, he, for the joy before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame who has sat, and then he, after this, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is crucifixion before coronation. Now, I don't know anybody who welcomes suffering. None of us here do. I certainly don't. Even if it happens for the cause of the gospel, martyrdom is such an honor. I don't welcome pain. None of us do. None of us should. But if it's God designed for us to experience suffering and shame and criticism and opposition for his name's sake, let us do it with all joy. Furthermore, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So my friend, if you want to live a life that honors God in this world, you will be persecuted. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And now God in his infinite wisdom is allowing our culture to go down the drain so that the culture no longer allows for lukewarm believers. <laughs> Isn't that great? Our society no longer tolerates the lukewarm believer, the undefense believer. Either you are with us or you are against us. The culture will say that to you. But secretly, this passage here, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. We wish this passage read, some who desire to live godly will be persecuted, don't we? Or, or some of us probably would wish that this passage read, none who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. But no, the Bible says all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. The good news, church, is that God always sustains his people when we face difficult seasons. Suffering now, glory later, is part of God's plan, sovereign plan for humanity. He himself endured the most severe affliction of all. Namely, again, punishing his own son, turning his face away from his own son temporarily so that he wouldn't have to turn his face away from you and from me eternally. That's God's perfect plan, suffering before glory. But let's look at the contrast here that this scene so clearly demonstrates to us. In contrast with God's perfect plan, what we have is man's prideful project, which includes preferably glory without suffering. Verses 20 to 28. Mom enters the scene now. And who can blame her? My mom will probably do the same thing. But... Um, Prompted by the promise of the resurrection and possibly unhappy with the lessons from the parable of the landowner. Because remember that lesson, Jesus says, everyone will cross the finish line together. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Everyone enters the kingdom of heaven only by one means, by grace through faith, not by merit. So that probably disappointed her a little bit and those two guys too. So the mother of James and John sought to secure her son's position of honor in the eschatological kingdom. And again, they just heard that Jesus is going to be betrayed. And all they care about is who gets the bigger office? No, they're concerned about their own prominence. And tragically, we imitate the same thing. The lack of sensibility here is so natural for us when we care too much about our position, when we care too much about comfort, too much about our own desires and other people's problems, when that happens to us, when we are so focused on our own dreams, positions, comfort, and desires, other people's problems become completely unimportant. But Jesus responds by instructing his followers to focus on faithful service instead, rather than kingdom renown. He did prepare martyrdom for them. That's what the cup illustration means. And the other gospels say that he also has the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized. Not a literal water baptism, but the immersion in this type of suffering. That's the, the cup illustration here that Matthew describes. For the eleven, of course, Judas is excluded. 
And Jesus will reward them accordingly. But check this out. God grants positions of greater authority in the millennium. That's what's going to happen in the future. Not based on merit, but solely on sovereignty alone. See? Because Jesus, prior to this, just as everybody enters the kingdom, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Everybody who will enter the kingdom of heaven will come in with equal standing. There's no first, second, and third. There's no gold, silver, and bronze as far as entering the kingdom. However, there will be positions of authority in the kingdom. Jesus didn't deny that there will be a right-hand person and a left-hand person. He says, the Father has already determined that. That's not something for you to know. That's not something for you to worry about. All you need to worry about is faithful service. Don't worry about greatness in the kingdom. My Father has already filled those positions. Christ is not saying that He doesn't know who they are. He does know who they are. But He just is withholding that information because... Probably, if any of us knew the number two guy and the number three guy, we would worship these people. That's probably the reason why the scripture does not reveal that to us. We know that David, for the resurrected David, will occupy a place of prominence in the kingdom of heaven. But that's it. And we know that disciples will occupy 12 thrones. But as far as who's going to be in the right-hand side or on the left-hand side, we don't know that. Because, again, because our natural tendency is to worship People. We would idolize these people. Take our Roman Catholic friends, for example. They are convinced that Mary occupies one of those seats. Now, even though nothing in the Bible suggests such a thought, they pray to her unaware that she never heard a prayer from anybody, nor does she want to. Obviously, she deserves our admiration and will always be remembered for her role in the life of Christ. But as far as mediation between God and man... The Bible is very clear about that. Paul says to Timothy, there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So this request here from the sons of Zebedee, from their mother, she represents the human heart that seeks to bypass suffering and get to the crown before the cross. That is our desire. Man, if we could avoid suffering at all costs, we would. And if we could avoid the cross and get straight to the, the crown, we would. But look at verse 25 and 26 again. Jesus closes that entire scene by telling them to reevaluate their value system. Say, wait a minute, you, you still haven't learned. You need to reevaluate your concept of suffering and glory and your concept of greatness. And you need to align those values with mine. And it's not hard to do that. He says, just flip everything upside down. And what he says was, you really want to be great in the kingdom? Just invert that pyramid. You serve everybody. You consider yourself a slave of everybody. Now, that doesn't come naturally for you and for me. To, no, we like to say it, don't we? Well, I'm at your service. Or some of us sign our emails you know, in his service and yours. So we don't mind being called a servant. The problem is we don't like to be treated like servants. We should be a community of people who serve one another, an upside-down community. We should be so different from the world. And that's in every aspect, church, so contrary to the world, so countercultural that when people enter this place, they say, what is that? Now, shockingly, I know many Christians who expect to be treated like royalty. They get bitter because their ideas are not implemented in the church or they, their need for attention is not met. They protest that. They criticize, complain, campaign, and corrupt. The four C's of church drama. It happens in every church. As a result... They create such a toxic environment, just like the disciples, a toxic environment that if unaddressed, risks church splits. It is not hard to spot people like that. They're usually more concerned with title or position or influence rather than service. 
And Jesus presents himself as the ultimate example of conscientious selflessness. That should be our attitude. And it doesn't come naturally. But now Jesus concludes this whole thing by introducing the concept of substitutionary atonement. Again, not introducing because he talked about this earlier before. But what he says is, look at my life. He says, follow me. And he presents himself as an example. He would offer his life as sufficient payment for the sins of the world. Now, some people will decline the offer of salvation. And sadly, we see that happening every day. And therefore, they will be excluded from his transaction. But others will be saved. In fact, he says, many will be saved. And again, the idea of ransom here has nothing to do with paying a kidnapper. It has to do with settling the debt of a sinner. And we know that every person ever conceived except Christ has a death sentence on our records. That's because Romans 2 verse 23 and then 6 verse 23 say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So Jesus who never committed any sin takes our place on the cross so that whoever believes in him will go free. God then accepts that payment as sufficient and acquits the believing sinner on the merit of Christ. Now, church, tell me, who in their right mind would decline such a deal? People do it all the time. He doesn't expect his followers to die atoning debts on behalf of others, but he does expect us to duplicate the attitude. And that's what he is talking about here. Duplicate the same heart of selflessness. And if necessary, yes, lay down your life for your brother or sister in Christ. Lay down your comfort for your brother or sister in Christ. Lay down your preferences. Lay down your opinion or whatever the case is in order to serve one another. That means we should not think of ourselves too highly. Like Romans 12 verse 3 says, that is so counterculture. That's against our flesh. That's against what we learn from, from our culture. We are not to think too highly of ourselves. And we're not to consider ourselves more important than others. Uh, in fact, the Bible says, considers other more important than ourselves. Philippians 2 verse 3. Now, if I consider you more important than me, that means is your need is more important. My comfort comes second. And again, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward is someone who doesn't own anything. Did you know that? A steward is someone who serves as a manager of the properties of the owner. So you don't really own anything here. Everything that you have, including your life, belongs to God. And you are stewards of those things that belong to God. Your brother in Christ belongs to God. You are to be a steward of your brother in Christ, his godliness, his holiness. And the way you do that is by praying for him and by going to him when you see him or her sinning and say, Brother, I'm worried about your life. I want you to walk in godliness and holiness. Do you mind if I ask you a question? We don't operate by the world's value system. We operate by a different system. And in that system, God has made it very clear that his perfect plan starts in sharp contrast against man's prideful project. So it's God's perfect plan against man's prideful project. We prefer glory without suffering. I mean, none of us here would say volunteer to go through suffering before the crown. But that's not the case. But, and he promises suffering before glory. And again, just to keep things in perspective, what is 10 years, 20 years, 30 years of, of pain, whether it's emotional, physical, suffering, compared to eternity, compared to everlasting glory and joy? That's our perspective. Now, the scene concludes our series on the prescriptions of our majestic Savior. You know, prescription, is that's, these are things he's encouraging us to do. Just so, so that we can wrap everything up here. We learned from chapter 18 that he has stipulates for us childlike humility, 
Christ-like holiness, congregational cleanliness, remember we talked about church discipline, constant forgiveness, conjugal faithfulness, cultivated loneliness, calculated godliness, and now conscientious selflessness. That's his value system. If we claim to follow him, we must embrace his system and reject the natural tendency to reject his plan for our lives. If you're not yet a believer in Christ, I don't mean that you've always come to church. What I mean is, have you ever come to a place in your life that you realize you're a sinner and you needed a Savior? If you haven't done so yet, and if church is a cultural thing for you, it's just a thing that you do, but you really never had the new birth, today's the day. The Bible says very clearly that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you become new. All things have passed away. And if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts, the Bible says, because today's the day of salvation. Please, do not postpone any longer. I don't mean to alarm you, but you're only a breath away from eternity. Father, thank you for the clear instruction from your word here. The fact that Jesus instructs us about his value system, how, how to deal with one another, how to interact in the body of Christ. We know that our flesh gets in the way. Sometimes we desire to be served. We desire to be heard. Make us all lay aside our preferences to follow your preference for your church. Lord, we trust you. And we want to grow in Christ, Lord. And if you're going to be glorified in our lives, even through suffering, Lord, we welcome that. We just pray for the sufficient and sustaining grace to go through adversity in a way that's going to be honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people, just like you, to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.